following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please now turn in your Bible to the letter of 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's earlier letters and uh, a long letter that we begin a series tonight that should take us uh, many months to get through, but we want to do it justice and consider the important matters that Paul raises here with a a wonderful church, a gifted church, and a a church with um, uh, quite a few challenges. And it raises the question as we read it, you know, how, do you, how do you write a letter to a, a loved one who has many challenging problems, uh, relational difficulties, uh, a believer, but perhaps someone who poorly understands the gospel? Uh, perhaps this loved one is very gifted, has tremendous potential, uh, but has been encumbered with various issues, maybe made poor decisions, and so his or her progress in the faith is lacking. Well, it's in that spirit that Paul is writing to his spiritual children, those he had led to Christ, those he had developed in in planting this church, a very gifted group of believers in what may be called the the sin city of the Mediterranean world, a very influential city of Achaia in the mainland of Greece, and a place where believers had lots of opportunities— Opportunities for commerce, for material gain, uh, opportunities for witness uh, to many ethnic backgrounds, and also a place of many opportunities for vice and exposure to every false belief known to humankind. Well, Paul, as a spiritual father to these people, addresses them with boldness and compassion. He's direct with them, and yet gentle, and He corrects them with understanding and wisdom that we find consistently throughout this letter. I hope you'll see that Paul's counsel to the church at Corinth demonstrates the power of the cross to a people broken and fractured by sin who are in desperate need for restoration and wholeness that comes through renewed faith in Jesus Christ. Please follow as I read the first half of chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ." 
who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same, same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we would not trust our own wisdom, but seek the very wisdom of God. We would not seek our own power, but the power of the cross revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you might give us wisdom and power to understand your word, to apply it and to live it in a manner that pleases you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared in this pulpit before the disappointment that me and my teammates had in our senior year in uh, varsity football at my uh, high school and outside of Houston, Texas. And I shared before that the, the team I played for was an incredibly talented team. Uh, we had known a lot of success leading up to that year, and uh, we were really were not lacking in talent or giftedness. We had some of the fastest runners in the whole state of Texas on our football team. We had size. Uh, our offensive line averaged like 260, 270 pounds. It's almost the size of a, of a college team. And, uh, but what we, when we weren't lacking in gifts and talents, we were lacking in focus, in leadership. Our first game of the season, we nearly beat the number two ranked team in, in the city of Houston. We went on to win several of our next games by uh, a large margin. And that's when trouble began to brew, when we had a Saturday game for homecoming, and half of our team showed up hungover from a late-night drinking party the night before. And so as it turns out that the team showed up to play in the second half, and by that time it was too late, and we lost the game. And from there on out, uh, the season was downhill. Our unity unraveled. Dissension grew among the team. Our coaches' attempts at discipline backfired when several key players quit. And so they they and their families proceeded to call for his resignation. And so this firestorm continued to simmer until it resulted in a rather lackluster season result by season's end with a merely 500 record. Far short of our expectations and potential. Our team failed for a lack of unity. Lack of focus and purpose and discipline centered on one key goal. 
And like our varsity football team, teams of all manner of sports and competitions fail, fail to rise to the occasion to fulfill their potential, oftentimes due to various factions and conflicts and personality problems in the team. Families rupture due to selfishness, due to neglect, building up walls that become barriers to good communication. Companies and schools and various organizations are plagued by self-centered agendas that contend against the primary goals for which they exist. Likewise, the church. Churches fall victim to pride and folly becoming less effective in their mission. And that mission is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples in his name. This is one of Paul's earlier letters written to a most gifted and very strategically located church intended to be a a flagship church to send out missionaries and and plant other churches across the Greek, uh, Greek mainland. Paul had invested a lot of time here. He was there for at least a year and a half, and he's writing this letter years later from the city of Ephesus, another flagship church on the mainland of Asia Minor, in response to reports of various problems in Corinth, and as we see as we go throughout this letter, in response to their request to, uh, for counsel on various matters. Scholars have noted that you know, the problems at Corinth were legion for a, a young church of young believers surrounded by a very pagan and materialistic, sophisticated society, And in our text tonight, we come across one of the first issues, a a kind of cult of personality problem among among leaders. And it becomes clear in our text and beyond that the Corinthians seem to have an obsession with rhetoric, with public speaking, and, and a manner of worldly wisdom. They seem to be a people afflicted with snobbery, really high upon cosmopolitan sophistication, Theirs was a very privileged culture, a people who thought themselves special, not necessarily bound by traditional mores and morals. In fact, I believe that the attitudes reflected in this letter are, very, are reflected in today's society, in our metropolitan centers, in our, in our places of higher education that snub their nose down upon tradition and order and uh, especially when it comes to a biblical sexual ethic. Paul will go on to address an issue of sexual immorality. Uh, There are issues of the abuse of believers' freedom. There's issues in this church of, of believers taking other believers to court, bringing lawsuits against them. This Corinthian culture is one that might frown their nose upon those who would keep the law of Moses, accusing them of being legalistic. It's a contrast from what we studied in our last series of the, in the book of Galatians. If the Galatians were a bit legalistic and works-oriented, at Corinth the pendulum swings to the opposite, a, a place that is tempted by license in a Christian subculture lacking in holiness in God-centered order. And so we'll see as we move on in this letter all kinds of issues of, 
of believers promoting their own selfish rights, demonstrating poor peacemaking and conflict resolution skills. There's confusion about marriage and singleness, a, a dabbling with idolatry, lacking in modesty and propriety, class warfare. And finally, people questioning, doubting the resurrection and having a this-world focus, lacking a theology of suffering and perspective of, of what it means to honor and please God in this life. And so, this letter to a people find, finding themselves in a very worldly, sophisticated society, a, a very gifted people who have been called and equipped to, to reach not only Greece, but the nations— as a, as a crossroads between the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea, a very affluent place, a melting pot of entrepreneurial and, and productive peoples. It sounds familiar to us. The Corinthian culture, fast forward 2,000 years, is very much like the American culture, with all of our affluence. All of our entrepreneurial spirit, our productivity, our, our mastery of trade and communication, and a melting pot of cultures gathered here for, for economic opportunity. Many of our places, our highly urban centers across our country, are very Corinthian in their nature. And likewise, our borderline relationally, morally, and spiritually bankrupt. It's very likely that the believers at Corinth were made up of Hellenistic Jews and Greek God-fearers and not a few pagan converts to Christianity. The city of Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans back in 146 BC, but then rebuilt a century later by Julius Caesar and became a place of merchants and traders, of military, retired military personnel. And they grew it by, by Paul's day, become a very prosperous city with over a half a million people, and largely because it sits on a four-mile isthmus between the two seas, by which they conduct a lot of trade and commerce. In fact, great ships would bring their cargo, unload it, cart it four miles across land to be loaded up on other ships to take it across the adjacent sea. Even small ships could be carted across the land in a kind of rail system. And so in this place of commerce, of prosperity and opportunity, a, a great place of great strength and, and diversity, we find one of the Corinthians' greatest strengths is a weakness. The weakness to scatter, to disunify, to be focused on self rather than on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe Paul writes to the Corinthians as he writes to us today to remind us that we are united by grace with gratitude through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, despite all these many problems that the Corinthian believers were facing, Paul is nevertheless optimistic. He writes with a, with a positive spirit as he opens this letter, and he reminds these people that they are united, they are unified by God's grace. Now, as he customarily does, Paul makes an appeal of his authority as an apostle. 
which is based not on his pedigree or his academic degrees or his long list of accomplishments, as impressive as they were, but rather the call, the calling, and the will of God. That Paul has been appointed as an apostle, as a witness of the glorified Jesus Christ, and called to be a, a, an apostle to preach the gospel and build up the church. And here in these opening verses, Paul gives a definition of the church. There are three key characteristics defined in verse 2, that believers are sanctified, are called as saints, and those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this church riddled with its problems and tainted by worldliness, it's a little bit startling that, that Paul goes right away to tell them that they are sanctified. Paul does not come out lambasting them, accusing them, attacking them. He does not come out listing all their faults and issues. Rather, he reminds them first and foremost that you are sanctified. And that word sanctification in the New Testament can be understood in at least two different ways. To be sanctified is very similar to what we call justification. That you have been made holy. You are declared holy by the work of Jesus Christ by his life, death, and resurrection, by his atoning sacrifice for your sins, you are now sanctified before God. You are holy in his sight because of the work of Christ. But we also understand that word sanctification is a process of growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ as we learn to trust God and to obey his word. And so when Paul says that you are sanctified— He is saying, you are a people set apart for the praise of his glorious grace. You are to be my witnesses as a people called out to be holy. And such, you are saints. You are saints. Which is not a special status. It's not the A-team in God's kingdom. All of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ are saints. Which has little or nothing to do with how holy we've become, but rather the holiness of Christ appropriated to us by God's grace. And we are called to live up to that calling by faith and obedience to God's word. And so Paul is reminding this people who have been tainted and, and tainted and stained by the sewers of the world that God has washed them. God has taken you and clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he has that same message to you and I, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've gone through, no matter how difficult a road, no matter how poor the decisions we've made, you are sanctified and clean in God's sight through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. In this third mark, he reminds us that believers are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus if you call upon him by faith. God has given you his spirit to turn away from trusting in the world, trusting in self, trusting in the philosophies of of our age, but calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in his blood. Paul is describing a people who are in the muck of a Corinthian culture that is filled with debauchery and blasphemy and folly and foolishness, And he's saying the same thing to you and I, who live in a very Corinthian society, with all manner of vice, 
with all manner of temptation, with all manner of immorality, living in a culture that's boasting in its evil and immorality, he's saying to us, you are washed. You are clean. You are holy in my sight, and I've set you apart for the praise of my glorious grace to be my witnesses to the world. You know, Westminster Church is, I would say, a mature church compared to where the Corinthians were at this time. We have many mature believers. We have many people who can testify to having been converted decades ago. And God has cleaned you and washed you, and you can testify to his faithfulness over time. But like any church, we have plenty of Corinthians. We have plenty of people who are newer to the faith. We have plenty of people who have been washed and are still dealing with the consequences of of worldliness. And it's also uh, something that is not just a... There's whether a believer's been new in the faith or or long in the faith, um, we can testify that many, many of our families have been afflicted and tainted by a very Corinthian society around us. And so we can come to this text uh, as a people who recognize that you and I both need cleansing by the precious blood of Christ. And it's his perfect blood, his righteous blood, that only cleanses us, cleanses us but, but heals us, heals us and forgives us of our mistakes, delivers us from our past traumas, our abuses, the ongoing battles with temptation and guilt, the kind of grace that delivers us from our besetting secret sins. And for those of us who have problems and issues that only our closest family members and friends even know about, we are exhorted by this text to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to cry out to him, to reaffirm our sainthood, not on my, the basis of my goodness, but on the basis of his faithfulness, of his sufficiency on my behalf, to claim my sanctified status, resting in the work of Christ, and being committed by faith and obedience to grow in sanctification, is I plead for that grace and peace by which Paul greets these believers and us today who share the same one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then a closing application on this initial section is a challenge to us of the danger we have of forgetting God's grace. Whether you are a new convert or have been walking with God for decades— we have a weakness to forget God's grace. And when we forget his grace, we're not dependent upon his grace, we can have a tendency to look down upon others who may be messy, who may be dirty, whose lives may not look right or smell right. We, when we forget God's grace, we boast in ourselves and slip into ruts of self-righteousness. See, it's grace that makes us humble and a grateful people unified at the level playing field at the foot of the cross. And it's in this next section, verses 4 through 9, we see Paul expressing our unity with the gratitude we share through Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul is thankful in verse 4 and 5. He's thankful for these people. He, he's grateful for them. He loves them like a parent with 
with unruly children who are dirty, but who are broken, but are coming back home. But notice that Paul was not grateful because they're so good or because they're so exemplary. In fact, they're, they're kind of embarrassing to him. And yet he's thankful for the grace that God has given them. And it's by this grace, it's with this grace, that, that God has gifted this people with abilities and speech and knowledge. In fact, Paul seems to be highlighting the uniqueness of this congregation who were remarkably articulate and gifted in communication. They, they seem to have a, a special understanding of the ways of the world and had spiritual insight. They had tremendous potential in spreading the gospel all across the Greek mainland and, across, and to all the traders and merchants that were coming throughout the, from, throughout the Mediterranean world. Paul also seems to indicate here, as he talks about the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, Paul seems to be affirming that these people were genuinely converted. They were not phonies. And these were people who did not accept superficiality. They they were authentic. And it's a reminder, a humble reminder to us, that the truly converted can fall into grievous sins, as we will find throughout this letter. And so the Corinthian believers were real. They did not accept any false caricatures. They were abundant in many gifts, not lacking in gifts, as Paul says here. And yet, they seemed to lack true biblical wisdom and a vision of a call to personal holiness to please God. And they were a people perhaps tempted to boast in themselves, to trust in their abilities to fall into self Sufficiency. In the story Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini that was uh, made more popular with a recent film, we find the story of this uh, Italian immigrant uh, young man who uh, was a gifted runner and uh, then enlisted into uh, the combat of World War II and on a flying mission uh, was left at sea and then captured and taken uh, hostage by the Japanese. And the story goes of how Louis Zamperini was a, it was a battle of wills between him and his captors, refusing to be broken by them and, and by, by standing firm through all manner of abuses and hardships and, and, uh, and torture, uh, Louis Zamperini overcomes. But at least in the film version, it falls far, far short of the true story. Because as the story continues in his biography, Louis Zamperini, after the war, was a very broken man and broken with all manner of mental illness and flashbacks and post-traumatic stress disorder and alcoholism until he met Jesus Christ at a Billy Graham crusade in 1949. And it was that conversion at the point of his brokenness that turned him in a new direction to rather than have vindictiveness towards his Japanese captors, to want to pursue them and reconcile with them and show them the grace and forgiveness he had experienced through Jesus Christ. Louis Zamperini had to let go of his self-sufficiency and learn to rely upon the grace of God, a very gifted man who was broken by sin in this world. And so we see in this passage 
as Paul says in verse 8 and 9, that is God who sustains you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, what he's saying here, he's not commending the Corinthians for their grip of the gospel, but rather thanking God for his grasp of them. It's God's grip on us that is commendable. It's God's grasp of us, not our grasp of the gospel by which we, for which we praise God. And it's God who provides us the grace to persevere, to say no to sin, to turn away from it in repentance. It's not our own cleanup efforts that make us presentable before the judgment seat of Christ. It is Christ's guiltlessness, his blamelessness, his righteousness through which we can stand before a holy God. And Paul is not grateful for the church's faithfulness, but for God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his promise to the patriarchs to make a people for himself, calling them into relationship, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, as it says in verse 9. And so we find a couple of dangers, a couple of warnings here in this passage. The warning against ingratitude of establishing an entitlement mentality by which we forget God's gifts, where we fail to remember his grace. We need to remember God's grace and show gratitude for it. There's also a warning here not to make too much of our gifts. If God has blessed you, praise him. But do not let your gifts become a stumbling block lest you trust in your gifts rather than trust in God. And this is indeed a very gifted church with tremendous resources. And it's a temptation for a church like ours to trust in our gifts rather than depend upon the giver. And we need to be reminded with humble gratitude to praise God, to thank him, to trust in him, and to learn to call upon him and depend upon him to be desperate for his grace. It's also a warning here, a reminder here, and you'll see this in in verses 1 through 9, Paul mentions Christ nine times. An extraordinarily Christ-centered section of Scripture to remind us of our sufficiency, of, what, of who it is that sustains us to the end, on whom we call upon and depend upon in our time of need. And a last warning here out of this section is that we might not amuse ourselves with the world's goods and entertainments, but delight ourselves in fellowship with our God. We are called, we are saved for a purpose. We are saved into fellowship with the living God. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends and have made known to you what my Father has made known to me. Jesus said that to the disciples just hours before they would betray him that he would die in their place. God desires fellowship with his people. And may we not forget, may we not get distracted, may we not be so consumed with all of our plans, all of our busyness, all the ministry we want to do for God, 
and neglect fellowship with our great God and Savior. He calls you into fellowship. There will come a time when missions and ministry cease, and we will live in eternal fellowship with the living God. Enjoy that fellowship now, just as Jesus, or just as Joseph, called upon his estranged, terrified brothers, come close to me. So the Lord Jesus calls out to us, come close to me. Fellowship with me in my name. Well, lastly, in, our, in section uh, verses 10 through 17, we find Paul addressing this issue of factions and, and divisions that developed in this church due to a lack of focus on the gospel, distracted with petty disputes. And Paul here offers a, a strong appeal in the name of Jesus Christ that these, that these people have an agreement uh, that there be no uh, divisions among them, that they have the same mind together. And the language here is indicative of a fabric, of a garment. And Paul seems to be warning against uh, schisms ripping apart the fabric of their community. And he's calling them to be knit together in one mind, like one garment, in a, in a unified whole. Now, is Paul saying that we are never to have disagreements in the fellowship of Christ church? Well, I think the obvious answer to that is no. We know that true fellowship will always involve some conflict and will involve some differences as we have to work out various issues that afflict us. But the goal is to come to common agreement. And after we've debated our points, to choose an action that is faithful and fulfilling our mission. You know, a, a married couple has to come to agreement on where they're going to live. If they're going to live in the same house together. That parents have to come to agreement on how they're going to educate a particular child. The child can't be uh, enrolled in two different schools. Likewise, a congregation has to be in agreement as to the new pastor that they're going to call to lead their congregation. And likewise, you know, in all those circumstances, there is going to be disagreements. There are going to be opinions. There will be the weighing of pros and cons, uh, the looking at good and bad options before us. But, but Paul's aim is to guide this people on how to come to agreement and to rid a culture of contentiousness. That seems to be the issue in verse 11 as he we, he reports back to the church that he has heard word from Chloe's household. Chloe was apparently a prominent member of the church, perhaps a widow uh, with some means in a large household. And uh, Paul receives reports of quarreling. And as James reminds us in chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you does not come from our desires and our passions that war within us, inside our hearts. And so there are factions quarreling at the church at Corinth, largely centered around leadership personalities. And there's at least four different camps. And, and Paul kind of points them out a bit tongue-in-cheek that there apparently was the Paul camp. You know, those that were all about grace and the gospel. Those who were loyal to their faithful leader. Then there was the Apollos camp. And Apollos was a, a, a faithful man, a, a, an educated man from, uh, from Egypt. He apparently was strong in speech. He perhaps had powers and rhetoric that the Corinthians really liked because they were Greek and they really enjoyed uh, a strong, persuasive speaker. But then there was the Peter camp, perhaps a more a Jewish-leaning group that was more concerned about the law, 
than grace and gospel and all those matters. And of course, there was the Christ camp, the truly spiritual ones uh, who wanted to put all the others to shame. And Paul is challenging them with some rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And in these rhetorical questions, Paul is exposing these divisions to show them for the folly that they are. That there, rather than have harmony, there is dissension. Rather than gospel unity, there is party spirit. Those of you who follow politics are well aware that the, the Republican field for the 2016 presidential election is wide open with perhaps a dozen contenders at this point. And over the next year, those true contenders will be, be weaned out and whittled down till there's finally one representative of the Republican Party uh, for president next year. And uh, it seems that the, the worldly people are sometimes wiser than Christians because uh, the, those who follow politics know how to rally around one leader. We're called to rally around one leader. And it's not Paul. It's not your favorite preacher. It's not your favorite denomination. It's Jesus Christ. He is the one true shepherd of the sheep, the one who laid down his life for us. And Paul goes on in chapters 3 and 4 to spell out these issues of divisions to bring Paul and Apollos and Peter down as mere servants. Stewards who are called upon to build upon the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on in this passage to address an issue of baptism where apparently just as the Corinthians were elevating leader personalities above where they should be, they also were elevating baptism as a you know, whoever baptized you became your uh, kind of your herald and, and your banner. But, but Paul wants to challenge them not to be distracted from their central mission. The preaching of the gospel. You know, the, the things that tempt us and might divide us are legion. And churches get divided over finances and funding and building projects and the color of the carpet and who to hire and who to call as a pastor and all these things. And we're going to have our differences. We are going to have opinions. But may we agree that the gospel is front and central to the life and the ministry and the witness of the church. Let us be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may that focus and may that that commitment tone down our rhetoric, tone down our dissentiousness, help to put our own selfish desires in check, that we can have dialogue, we can have discussions, we can have family debate over various issues. And this applies in the church, it applies in your ministry, it applies in your own household. It is the gospel keeping in check your passions and your desires so that your marriage, your home, your business is unified about the gospel of Jesus Christ, of knowing Christ and making him known. And one final point that Paul makes here about the gospel is that when he came to preach to the Corinthians, he did not come with great eloquence. He did not come with great rhetorical skill. And apparently this was off-putting to some of the Corinthians who highly valued rhetorical skill and a trained speaker and one who had great powers and persuasion. And scholars are kind of divided here because Paul was not a lightweight when it came to speaking or intellect or, or intellect or argument. But Paul refused to use worldly tactics. 
He refused to embrace some type of entertainment values to win people to Christ. As he will go on to say in the next chapter, he resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he aimed for the truth to be clear, to let the truth offend when needed, but for people to be one to Christ through the power of the preached word, not through the power of the preacher. And may we be a people who, who learn and listen well, that we might have ears to hear and hearts to understand and listen to the power of the word preached and allow the gospel to transform us as the gospel-centeredness of, of the wisdom and power of God unite us at the foot of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our dear gracious God and Father, We thank you that we have grace. We have infinite reason to show gratitude. We are united by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be a people, we at Westminster Church would be a people united about the things of the gospel. And I pray that in this series you would give us wisdom and give us power to comprehend and to apply this rich teaching that we might be your faithful witnesses in a very Corinthian society around us. For the praise of your glory and grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.